Good morning. There we are. We are going to be reading this morning from Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. And I believe Olivia is going to come and read that for us. Exodus 15, verse 22. And they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went out three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Amen. Thank you. And Lord, as we turn to your word now, We're asking that you'd visit with us, that your Holy Spirit would be present in the reading and in the preaching of your word. Lord, that you might minister to our hearts and lives, that you would bring healing to every one of us. We ask this for your glory. Amen. Continuing in our series on the names of God, and as Olivia just read, reading today about Yahweh Rapha, the Lord, our healer. Before we get to this passage, I'd like to begin by considering a passage that's much better known. If I were to ask you what's the most famous passage in all the Bible, probably the uh, unanimous pick would be John 3.16. But I think second pick, second runner-up would likely be Psalm 23. I wonder how many of you do you think you could recite this, uh, Psalm 23? Show me a show of hands. How many think you could recite this? I won't ask you to do it. Don't worry. So well known by so many of us, and yet within it is contained an enigma, a mystery, a question, a problem. And I wonder if we've considered the problem before. It begins in this wonderful way. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He guides me along the right paths. Did you catch that? When the Lord is our shepherd, he guides us along the right paths. The problem comes in the very next verse where we read this. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, or as many of you know, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Do you know what the problem is? The problem comes in... Praising God, worshiping Him in this psalm, claiming for Him to be our shepherd, describing the wonderful places that He leads us, and and declaring that He guides us along the right paths. But then finding that we're in the valley of the shadow of death. How did we get here, Lord? I thought I was following you. And our first inclination would be, I must have lost my way. 
But the psalm, the psalm declares that that's not true because it tells us that when we are there in the darkest valley, we haven't lost our way. The Lord is still there with us, I would argue, still guiding us along right paths. Do you believe that? How many of us have had this experience? We give our lives to Jesus. We've heard the good news and the opportunity to be saved if we would just trust in Christ, if we would follow him. And we say, that sounds right. I I need that. I need his salvation. And we choose to set the course of our life to follow Jesus, to follow God. And yet before long, we find ourselves in the darkest valley. And we wonder, have I lost my way? Or has God lost his way? How did I end up here? What we want to learn from our passage today in Exodus, it's the same pattern. It's the same story. It's the same God doing the same things, leading us along the right paths. But let's just learn this this morning. The right paths aren't always in the green pastures and by the still waters. We come to these verses in Exodus 15 and verse 22, and one of the most astounding events in all of human history has just taken place. God has parted the waters of the Red Sea. His people have walked across on dry ground, and then as the enemy pursued, the Egyptians pursued them in their chariots, coming down through the same uh, Red Sea opening that God had created. He causes the waters to fall back upon the enemy, and they are drowned in the sea. Fittingly, after such a great event, Moses and the people of Israel sing a beautiful song. That's really what the first half of Exodus 15 is all about. Songs of praise, words of amazement and worship at what God has done in his greatness, in his power. Notice verse 18, they finish the song by saying, The Lord reigns, Yahweh rules forever and ever. But we come to verse 22, and suddenly it would seem there's a dramatic shift. Because we find here that Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. They went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. Not surprisingly, we'll find that the people grumbled against Moses. And if it was, if it was me, I'd be saying, Moses, you forgot the map. Where's your GPS? This must not be the way. Why would you bring us out into this desert? You can imagine, I mean, surely they had their canteens or their, perhaps their leather skins that they'd filled with water when they were leaving Egypt. Couldn't refill them at the Red Sea. That was salty. Now three days in, the, the water is starting to run out. You can imagine it's being rationed now. Nobody's died. Nobody, nobody's died of thirst yet. Everyone's okay. But they are feeling the pain of their thirst. Can you imagine in a, in a nation traveling here, probably with thousands upon thousands of small children who are thirsty, can you imagine the noise, the whining, the crying? How did we end up here, Moses? 
We might be inclined to blame Moses and assume, well, he, he wasn't obviously following the Lord's leading. He didn't know where he was going, but it wouldn't be true because of what we read two chapters earlier in Exodus 13. In fact, it's like as soon as they leave uh, Egypt, as they're traveling out of Egypt, we read this, that by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. The moment that they leave Israel, they look up and they see supernaturally in front of them the pillar of cloud which turns to fire as darkness falls, a supernatural representation of God's presence, not just that his presence was there, but he was leading them. So it says that Moses led them into the desert, but we know who Moses was following it was the pillar of cloud. This had already worked out poorly for them. In chapter 14, this event that we've mentioned already, the crossing of the Red Sea. What's interesting is to simply look at the map, and some of you have commented on how much you've enjoyed seeing some maps in our series, so here's another one. The people of Israel, while they were in slavery in Egypt, likely lived in that crescent up at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. We know in the days of Joseph that Pharaoh had given Israel the best of the land. It would have been in that watered delta, watered from the Nile, place where they could grow their crops. Egypt, uh, people of Israel were living in Egypt probably in that, in that delta, in that place of fertile growing. And so if you were to simply look at the map and ask yourself, what's the best way to get to the promised land? Well, it's pretty simple. You go around the Red Sea, don't you? In fact, the most common route to get from Egypt to Israel was a, a well-worn highway that followed the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And if you see that little body of water up there on the right-hand side, that's the Dead Sea. That's the land of Israel. So this is really, really simple. We're leaving Egypt. We're heading to the promised land. Let's go straight east. Let's avoid the Red Sea. Let's take the highway up to the land of Canaan, where we're heading. But the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back, meaning head south. And encamp near Pi Hariah, between Migdal and the sea. They are, they are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Sephon. Now, the problem with these names is we don't know exactly where they are. Scholars debate exactly where the Red Sea crossing is. We don't know exactly where that happened. We don't know exactly where these places were. But we do know that God purposely turned his people away from the easy route the shortcut, the obvious way, and he directed them supernaturally with his pillar of cloud and fire into a place where they would literally be trapped between the armies of Egypt and the Red Sea. Now let me say this. This is our God. I don't know how long you've known God or walked with God, but I can tell you I've had this experience. How many of us have had this experience? 
that when we chose to follow Jesus and we, we wanted to do, we wanted to do his calling and his bidding and we didn't know it would be this hard. Why did he bring me to this place? Why did I have to experience this anxiety, this danger, this pressure? And what we're seeing here as the people of Israel leave Egypt is this is the right path. Psalm 23 is still true. He's still the shepherd. He's still leading me. He's still leading me in the right path. And for the people of Israel, it was the path through the Red Sea, through the impossible. You have to feel the anxiety, the danger of your circumstances. So they make it through the Red Sea, and the story begins all over because the cloud leads into the desert and there's no water and they keep going and they keep going the cloud's still leading them in the right path but they are thirsty this is our God read on in the story and thankfully on the horizon is the glistening of water Verse 23 says they came to a place called Mara. They could not drink its water because it was bitter. Um, our, our water here at the church gets a bit of a hard name, so I'm thinking we'll put Mara <laughs> over the fountain out there. If you've never tried it, uh, you can experience our story here. Actually, this probably was far worse even than our Wallenstein water. They came to Mara. How, how did they get to Mara? Why did they end up in Mara? Because the cloud led them to Mara. That's why. God, why couldn't you lead us somewhere else? Why here? Can you feel what's happening here? If you've never experienced this in your Christian life, today is a warning that you will, but it doesn't need to be a warning because... We find out how good this is. But this is the trial, not, not simply of the desert and of thirst. Here is the trial of disappointment. How many of us have gone down that road? We prayed for the right spouse. But God, why has my marriage been such a disaster? God, we've been praying for a pregnancy, for a child. And now you've allowed a miscarriage. Sometimes the cloud leads not just into the desert, not just into a trial, but into a deep disappointment. And we ask the question, why? Why does God lead us into these places. Why the desert? Why the thirst? Why the disappointment? Let me give you a few reasons why I think this is so important. Why does God lead us in these ways? And here's the first thing. God is always working to convince us that our world is not right. 
This goes back to the very beginning of the story of creation. God makes a beautiful, perfect world. He says it is very good. He places humanity over it as its caretakers. But when they sin against him and rebel against him, everything falls apart. And the good world, the perfect world that God has made becomes cursed because that's what people wanted. They didn't want to live under the blessing of God's rule. They chose to rule themselves. And this is the result. Don't blame Adam and Eve. We've all made the choice. The world is what it is because it is what we have made it as fallen human beings. This is the story of the Bible. And the rest of the Bible tells us the story of how God is going to fix this And ultimately, he's going to fix this when when Jesus returns to the world for the second time, and there's going to ultimately be a new heaven and a new earth, and everything that's wrong with the world is going to be made right. The problem for many human beings is we don't get that. This is our heaven. And some of us have reason to feel like maybe it is. We've been blessed so abundantly that we fail to recognize what's actually going on here. No, this world is a mess. It is broken. It is in need of healing. God leads us into the wilderness to remind us that all is not right with the world. Likewise, he leads us into the wilderness, into disappointment, to convince us that all is not right in our own hearts. Isn't it true that so often our trials, our pain, our frustration, our heartache brings out the worst in us? God uses these things to show us that there's something wrong, not just in our world, but in us. There is sinfulness and brokenness. There is a rebellious heart. And God has a plan for that too. To restore the human beings who rebelled against him. His whole story of history is a story of redemption to bring back what was ruined and primarily to bring back a people for himself. God leads us into the wilderness to convince us of these two things. The world is not right. My heart is not right. And then thirdly, he wants us to learn to trust him. The very thing that Adam and Eve didn't do in the beginning, God had been so clear, here's what I've given you to eat, here's what I want you to do, here's what I want you not to do. And in the essence of their sin, Adam and Eve were saying to God, we don't trust you, we'll trust the snake. We'll trust our own intuition. We'll trust our own desires. And God is teaching us again, bringing us back to the simple place where we would learn to trust in, believe in, our creator and our redeemer. So God leads them to Mara, to this place of disappointment. Can you imagine how thirsty they were as they approached this, what was likely a spring and a pool, thousands of people, and, and as they try to push their way to the front, the grumbling begins. They, they start to hear the sound of people's disgust as they taste the water and realize it's not fit to drink but God has a plan. For some reason, God says, there's a piece of wood. The Lord showed it to Moses, verse 25. And 
I, I don't know that there was any scientific value to this piece of wood. What was it about the wood? What was in the water? What, was there some kind of a chemical reaction that was taking place here? As far as we know, not. But simply that God was using this piece of wood to create an intervention. To make it clear that what was about to happen to the water was miraculous. God took this piece of wood which he had made... He took his man who he had called to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, had him throw it into the pool, and through that action, the water became drinkable. This was God teaching his people that they could trust him even in hardship, yes, even in disappointment. Now, of course, we don't always get that piece of wood to sweeten up what is bitter in our life, do we? But we still trust God. As the song said in verse 18, the Lord still reigns. He still rules forever and ever. Even over my circumstances, the bitterness of my life, he's still on his throne. He's teaching us to trust him. Notice what God says next. The end of verse 25. The Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. Later, uh, Moses would write this in Deuteronomy as he's reviewing Israel's journey through the wilderness and the 40 years of wandering. He says, He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You see, the same thing is true of the desert. The same thing is true of the disappointment of Mara. He brought you there to test you so that in the end... It will go well with you. In the moment, it doesn't feel like it's going well at all. But God is doing a work, growing our faith, growing our trust, so that ultimately we end up in a better place. The New Testament teaches the very same thing. Paul wrote that we know that in all things, meaning all circumstances, God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You see that? How the circumstances of life God's going to use for good ultimately to bring us into conformity to his own character as seen in Jesus. And James wrote this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God brings us to the wilderness, even to disappointment, because he's bringing out something good through these painful circumstances. I want you to just look down now at verse 27. And what I want to suggest to you is this verse may represent to us the most dangerous test of all. Here we read that they came to a place called Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. And Israel's thinking, God, why couldn't we come here first? I wonder how many of them said, we should just stay here. Why go to the promised land? We can stay at Elam. And I'm suggesting to you that this is actually the most dangerous test of all here in all of our verses in Exodus 15. 
It's more dangerous than the wilderness. It's more dangerous than the disappointment of Mara. It's the test that comes into our life when God gives us all that we want. This is the most dangerous test. The 12 springs and the 70 palm trees. This is very pertinent to us in our culture because of our affluence. And I know some of you hear me say that and you say, well, you you obviously don't know my bank account. I'm not rich. But ladies and gentlemen, if we simply compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we are in the very top percentile of the most wealthy. How many millions and billions of people in our world live on $10 a day? How many millions of people in our world live on $1 a day? How many millions, perhaps billions of people in our world live day to day simply trying to find something to eat for that day? How many millions of people in our world live in a 10 by 10 hut? What we have is not normal when it comes to our world. And this is dangerous for us. It's amazing to me that in North America we have created theology around this idea of prosperity. And we've taught people, some have taught people to believe that prosperity is actually the thing that God wants for you. It's the reason that Jesus died for you. So that you can be healthy and wealthy and wise. And folks, that is a lie of the devil. The most dangerous test of all is when God gives us all that we want because we forget those two lessons that I just told you about. Make it three. When we have everything that we want, we forget that the world is actually broken. That Jesus came to redeem a world that is so messed up. We start to think that it's great. When we have everything that we want, we tend to forget how broken we are. We're blinded to it. And of course, when we have everything we want, we so often stop trusting in God. That's why we don't have this logo on the wall. But how many of us live this? We know what God teaches us about generosity, about sharing what we have with others and giving to the work of ministry and to the spread of the gospel. We know that. But we withhold because of this. That what's most important to me is my comfort. Or we hear the announcement at church about how we need help in the nursery and we need more uh, kids, uh, kids ministry workers and uh, there's all kinds of needs, not just in the church, but all through our community and all around the world. We, we hear the call, the invitation, come and help, come and serve, but... I don't, I don't have time for that. Or we choose how we'll serve based on what's comfortable. Where do, where do I feel best? What's easy? What, what makes me feel good about myself? It is so easy for us, especially as Christians in our culture, to live this. It's all for comfort. Not all for Christ. You see, when you live all for comfort, you've got to take the cross away. Isn't room for that. 
We forget that Jesus died a horrific death to redeem the mess of our world and of our own sin. We forget that Jesus has called us to take up our cross and follow him. His cross, not just being the means by which he redeems us, praise God for that, it's also the pattern that he's asked us to follow. Lay down your life for the sake of the other. Find me here in this path. That's not how we save ourselves. It's the cross of Jesus that saves us. All we can do is trust him and surrender. But Jesus calls us to follow that pattern with our lives. All for Christ. So why does God lead us into the wilderness? To convince us that the world is not right. To convince us that our heart is not right. To teach us to trust him. And then finally this one. To keep us longing for redemption. This moment of redemptive history, God was bringing his people out of Egypt. It was the exodus. God was supernaturally rescuing them from slavery. And we read in scripture how his plan was to make them his own, his own special people. And at this point of history, we're going to see what God says to them. Notice verse 25, he said he's going to put them to the test. And then verse 26 He says this, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his degrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. God here is speaking about redemption. There is a sense in which his plan for Israel if they could have simply followed his covenant and obeyed it, and Chris Koenig pointed this out a couple of weeks ago, there was this covenant that God had made with Abraham, carried on to all of the people of Israel. There was a sense in which it was, it was an unconditional covenant. God was going to bring it to pass. But there were these conditions as well. Conditions which would result in this blessing. When he says, I won't bring on you the diseases of the Egyptians, in some ways he's saying, I'm going to reverse the effects of the curse for you. Why did the Egyptians have disease? Because of sin, because of the brokenness of our world. And the people of Israel were destined to experience the same things. But God says, if you obey me, if you trust me, if if you're faithful to me, I'm going to roll back the curse and I'm going to bring back the blessing of Eden upon you. And you think, well, that's, that is a good deal. We should do that. But they couldn't. No matter how, time, how many times God remind them, how many times they sinned and fell back into their old ways and God would bring them back and restore them and remind them again, no, no, if you follow me, I will bless you. I'll roll back the curse. I'll bring on the blessing of creation. And they couldn't do it. Why? Because in this moment of redemptive history, God was pointing out to his people and to all human beings for all of history that there would be only one way, one ultimate way by which God could bring back redemption, by which God could fully roll back the curse, bring back his blessing. And it wouldn't be through a law. It wouldn't be through commandments where he says to his people, do this and I'll bless you. 
It would only come through the good news of Jesus. Now let me take a moment here and just address the question of healing. Many in our world today would use this name of God and suggest to us that based on this name, that healing, physical healing from our ailments, our sickness, our disease, it's promised to us because God is Yahweh Rapha. He is the Lord, our healer. And if we find ourselves ill or sick or diseased, we simply need to claim the promise of Yahweh Rapha, call out to him for who he really is, have enough faith to believe that he will heal you, and he will. How many have heard that? How many have tried that? Now let's be clear, James chapter 5 teaches this to us. If anyone is sick among you, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Now this is a wonderful passage, and it's a wonderful thing to practice. I have been the recipient of this uh, earlier in my life. And uh, when I was around 30 years old, I was hit with something called psoriatic arthritis. And it became extremely severe to the degree that I had a hard time climbing stairs. And at that time, the elders of Gory Bible Fellowship, where we previously served, did this. And uh, Claude Martin, who I love, poured a lot of oil on my head. <laughs> had to buy his wife a new jug of vegetable oil. And the elders prayed for me, and I cried. And nothing happened. Now, praise God, over the course of time, once I got over my denial that I actually had arthritis at 30 years of age, and I was finally willing to submit to and take the advice of the doctor, I ultimately ended up on some medication that has left me feeling hardly any evidence or effects of arthritis. Praise God for that. And you can argue that that's actually God. That was God's answer to our prayers. I've also been on the other end. I've often prayed for people who had physical ailments and disease. I've been part of these times of prayer. And there have been times where it seems that God acts upon those prayers and other times where it seems he does not. And I think what's important for us to understand that a scripture like this it's the word of God. It is true. But when we read a scripture like this, or we read about Jesus healing people, God's not intending for us to forget everything that he's already taught us in the Bible. And what he's taught us in the Bible is that we live in a broken and sinful world, which he has so clearly said in Genesis chapter 3, has a curse upon it. And until that curse is fully rolled back, until we stand in the new heaven and the new earth, until we have our new bodies, we are going to still experience sickness and disease. We can't just claim it away. Here's a really funny verse, I think. Paul writing to Timothy, and he says this in 2 Timothy 4, yeah, Trophimus, remember him, my co-worker, the guy that's serving with me? Yeah, he got sick. I just left him in my lead as sick. 
I mean, this is the guy who had healed people. He'd touched people, his, you know, his handkerchief, and he'd laid on people and prayed for people, and people had been raised from the dead and all kinds of things. But yeah, Trophimus, sorry, bud. Not for you. And of course, Paul's own testimony could say that he had some kind of a thorn in the flesh, and we don't know what it was, but he pleaded with the Lord to take it away, and God said, sorry, man. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You see, you've got to keep your eye on the big picture before you start focusing in on a verse like James 5 and claiming something for now that God has promised for later. And the story of the Bible is described right here. Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Why are we waiting eagerly? Because we don't have it yet. Don't try to claim this yet. You can't have this yet. Yes, sometimes God chooses to heal. Praise God for that. There's people in this room that I have prayed healing for. We should do that. We should live out James chapter 5, but don't assume that every ailment of our lives now has the promise of healing. It doesn't. It has the promise of healing in this future day, in this future redemption, when Jesus returns to earth, and then everything is going to be restored at that time. In the meantime, we groan. Creation groans, we groan. We wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That happens when Jesus returns. So what is this healing of God? How can he be Yahweh Rapha if he doesn't intend to heal all of our diseases? And of course, what we need to recognize is the primary healing of God is not just for that sickness I have or for my arthritis, but for something far, far deeper. Jesus alluded to this when he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The true sickness, the deep sickness, the primary sickness is not physical. It's far deeper. It's the sickness of our sin. We read this in Isaiah 53, describing the suffering of Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Yeah, see, he's going to heal me. No, read the whole verse. The primary healing that's being described here is for sin and, tra and transgression and iniquity. This God has promised to heal. And this is good news. I mean, I hope you're not sitting here today saying, oh, what a bummer. Or you're thinking, well, Gary doesn't know theology on this healing thing very well. But here's, here's what we need to understand today, and that is that God does want to heal you. He wants to transform you. He wants to change your life. That is why Jesus died. That is why... That's why God's allowed you to hear the gospel and hear about Jesus, and maybe you've responded to Christ. It's because God wants to heal you, transform you, 
As we read earlier in Romans 8, he wants to make you into the image of his son. This is the healing of God. He's going to heal his world, and he's going to heal the people of his world, and he's already begun that work. How many of us can say amen to that? Some of us can look back at situations in our life or a time in our life where where sin had such a hold on us, but praise God, he's, he's caused that grip to be loosened in our lives. Some of us have overcome addiction. Some of us have overcome the bitterness of unforgiveness. Some of us have seen our character change. There's children here who've watched transformation in their parents. This is why we come to church. This is what we have to celebrate is God is changing lives. And I hope that as we read this story, we see ourselves, as we think about the people in the wilderness, the disappointment of Mara, we feel the reality of our own brokenness in ourselves, but we leave today with this hope that God wants to change you and me. He doesn't want us to stay the way we were. He wants to begin to heal the brokenness, and having come to Christ, this is the promise of God. Our transformation, our sanctification, God has promised it. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion, Philippians tells us. So he is Yahweh Rapha, even though my arthritis remains, or your sickness remains, or even your cancer remains, because he's healing our hearts. We're going to sing that now as we close. God is here. He's touching every heart. He's healing every heart. He's mending every heart. He's turning lives around. My question for us, in light of this truth, have you surrendered your life to Yahweh Rapha? Have you surrendered to his healing touch? Yahweh, Rapha, we are so thankful for who you are. Lord, I thank you that you guide us to hard places, to remind us of what you're doing in this broken world, to remind us of how much we need Jesus. Lord, maybe there's someone today who's never trusted in Christ. I pray that they might see eyes wide open that you are a God who's promised to do that work in our hearts. Lord, maybe there's someone here today who's discouraged who's really in that wilderness place, who's feeling that that disappointment. Lord, would you help them somehow to see that you're using that pain and that disappointment to bring about the healing of their heart, even though their circumstances hurt so much. Lord, we need to trust you. We We need your help even for this. So would you work in our hearts today? Would you change us and make us more like Jesus? We ask this for your great glory. Amen. God go with you this week.